Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Middle of the week, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Glad to have you along. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, thanks for being with us. You know that, as always, the best way for you to be a part of the conversation is to join us on the Ceasefire text line, 601-879-4395, 601-879-4395. At Ceasefire, they're always asking the big questions, like why wait for the next device to get the device you want? Right now, you can get any iPhone, $100 off at your local Seaspire store and online at cspire.com. Just curious, is there anything going on news-wise in the college football world as we speak on a Wednesday afternoon? Gracious. Postponements, venue movement as LSU and Missouri are now going to play in Columbia, something that we talked about yesterday as a a possibility that was being floated. That is now more than a possibility. It is reality. LSU and Missouri are going to play at 11 a.m., right? Yeah, 11 a.m. Central Time. Uh, Number 17 LSU's home game against Missouri, scheduled for Saturday night in Baton Rouge, has been moved to Faroe Field in Columbia due to the threat related to Hurricane Delta. Kickoff is now set for noon Eastern, 11 o'clock Central. That was announced earlier today. SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey said, due to the pending impact of Hurricane Delta on Louisiana and the surrounding area, it is in the best interest for the safety of everyone involved to move the game to Columbia. It was critical to relocate the game to an SEC campus, where SEC COVID-19 management protocols are in place and readily applied. I appreciate the cooperation of the schools who are working closely to make the appropriate operational adjustments in order to prioritize the health and safety of our student-athletes while accommodating this change in the schedule. First of all, wasn't it nice to see it unfold this way as opposed to the drama related to LSU and Florida? Perhaps we were able to avoid the drama because you weren't talking about a full 101,000-seat stadium and completely losing the home field advantage against a really, really good team. You were talking about going from seventeen to 20,000 people in Baton Rouge to ten to 15,000 people in Columbia against a bad team. Does this make you, I don't know, think differently of LSU's the right way, but it seems like this is very different. Uh, the way that this has gone, uh, of course, as you mentioned, but does this change the way you think about LSU and their decision-making with the way the thing with Florida was handled versus this one? Well, you had different players for one thing. Yeah. I I mean, to consider is that it was Florida that needed to move, was it four years ago? It was not LSU. That's right. So you had Jeremy Foley involved at Florida, who was probably the most powerful athletics director in the conference. 
And why can I not think of the uh, athletics director's name? Joe Oliva. Joe Oliva. I knew the last name started with an A, but I couldn't come up with his name. So, and, and they just had a big old whizzing match for the entire world to watch. And the conference was late getting involved to it, and they made some changes to the commissioner's power as a result to avoid a situation like this going forward. So the league office worked in conjunction with these two schools, but ultimately Greg Sankey made the decision. And while he was looking for input from other places, it was not input to the point that it was going to make the decision one way or the other. He made the decision. So basically, and the whole he process was a lot said, cleaner. You're doing. Basically, it was like you're doing what I say at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. But well, I think you also had a spot where both schools knew that his ability to make that decision was in place. And I'm sure they talked openly about it and, you know, made sure that Missouri was in a spot where they could handle hosting it, make sure that LSU understood why the decision was being made. And they made, look, I mean, they made a decision in the interest of public safety. And they made a decision that allowed them to play the football game this weekend in a year when getting games in on time, if at all possible, is of paramount importance because you don't know what's coming. And by all measures necessary, you've got to do everything you can to hang on to those open dates that are in place in the event that you have a rescheduling because of COVID. So LSU has an open date on November 7th. Missouri doesn't have a common open date, but you could shuffle things around if you had to. Actually, Missouri also has an open date on November 7th. So you could have pushed that game back, but then you would eliminate the possibility for either of those teams to have that window open to potentially make up another game. I think that's going to be interesting in terms of the decision related to Ole Miss-Alabama. Both Ole Miss and Alabama have a common open date of November 7th. And so on the surface, you might look and say, well, weather's going to be dicey. We're not sure what we're dealing with. Let's just push the game back to November 7th. That's not what they want to do. They want to preserve November 7th, the open date, and then, what, December 12th as a secondary open date for the potential to make up games that are lost to COVID. That's the reason the schedule was built the way that it was built. And so I think there's a possibility that we get some news this afternoon. You may have seen the report from Cecil Hurt, who covers Alabama and has for a long time, that said pretty much everything is on the table. But they've got to make a decision sooner rather than later. Yeah. So what's on the table for Ole Miss and Alabama? Possibly moving the game up on Saturday, as the forecast has changed a bit, from a 5 p.m. kick to you know potentially an 11 a.m. start for that game. Possibly moving the game up a day to Friday, and the forecast has slowed things down a little bit so that it looks like that would be a reasonable scenario and probably worked out pretty well in that high school football games all across the state of Mississippi largely have already been moved to Thursday night. So you're not really running into a lot of issues with high school football in the state of Mississippi. And not a whole lot of difference in preparation, right? By Friday, they've pretty much got everything installed and implemented and ready to go anyway. That, that is correct. And then the pushing it back to November 7th is also an option that's on the table. So that decision has to be made pretty soon. Borky, I know you've been kind of looking, and, and you probably have too, Haydad, at, at, at hurricane models and forecasts. And it looks like Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening into Sunday, which is a little bit later of a time frame than we were initially looking at, doesn't look great. 
No. Um, and even by the time it gets to Oxford, I mean, they're still projecting, I mean, 40-plus mile-an-hour winds, tornado threats, stuff like that. So, I mean, this thing, it, it weakened and, and, because... I'm it, glad you pointed that out because that may be even a bigger issue than Hurricane Delta in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, you may be looking at some pretty significant rain and some wind that's in the, you know, 15 to 30-mile-an-hour range. There's really no reason that you can't play football in that. It's the kind of offshoot thunderstorms and the potential tornadic activity that sometimes comes along in the wake of a hurricane that comes on shore that is probably far more concerning to be able to safely play that game on Saturday evening. Yeah, and this thing, it's currently, I don't know if right this second, but it did weaken because it went over the Yucatan Peninsula, but when it gets back into the Gulf, it's going to turn into a bear. And sadly, it's headed straight for Lake Charles, uh, which is the last thing that community needs right now. Um, yeah, the, the track has shifted a little bit west from where it was projected just yesterday. And, and that's just a shame because I saw an overhead picture. Actually, a buddy sent it in a group message not five minutes ago uh, of just neighborhoods in Lake Charles, just an overhead view, and you see blue tarp roofs everywhere. Uh, everywhere. I mean, that's it looks like all the houses are blue. It's, it's sad. But um, when it comes to playing this game... In a non-COVID world, moving it to the mutual off date would be the easiest answer. They probably would have decided that already. But with COVID, you brought up Friday. I think that might be the most logical solution to this. Assuming it still continues on its path. Now, they'd love to play Saturday at 5 o'clock for a lot of reasons. But it seems like Friday might be their best option. I mean, just looking at the current track... Saturday morning, you're looking at remnants of Hurricane Delta being in the central part of the state of Mississippi and making its way northeast with sustained winds of around 45 miles an hour. That's Saturday morning. I think that probably makes playing at 11 a.m. on Saturday a non-starter. And it's not going to be completely clear by the time you kick off at 5 o'clock or by the time you finish the game at at 8 o'clock and you don't know what's coming behind it, and you don't know what kind of potential power outages or resources may have to be allocated otherwise, Friday night you're looking at this storm being in Louisiana and probably not getting to Mississippi quite yet. And so it's potential that that, uh, there there is a real potential that that could make the most sense. And again, we're going to keep an eye on uh, on Twitter and the email accounts to see if there's an official announcement from the SEC office. Doesn't it feel like if the game were to be played on Friday that you would get an announcement today? I mean, because <laughs> if you wait till tomorrow, you're talking about the game being the next day. Yeah, if you wait till tomorrow, that means Alabama's getting on buses and trucking up to Oxford like the second they make the announcement. Yeah. Problem is, if you play Friday night, when are they going back home? Right after the game? I mean, you have to, right? Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, you're only talking about a three-hour bus ride. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would think that that absolutely would be the scenario. And maybe the safest scenario for everybody involved. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm. Just getting you started with you on this Wednesday. Got a baseball game going on right now that is important to many in the listening area. Braves playing the Marlins. National League Division Series game is on MLB Network if you want to watch it. Braves leading one game to none in the series, and they have a 2-0 lead through six innings 
over the Miami Marlins. A couple of solo home runs have given the Braves the lead in the ball game, and uh, they are trying to uh, push it out to a two games to none lead. You've also got A's and Astros going on. A lot of scoring early in that ball game. They're playing this one at Dodger Stadium out on the West Coast, and it excuse me, it's two two. A's and Astros in the top of the second inning. Houston trying to close that series out in three games. Game three coming up tonight between the Rays and the Yankees. Yankees got game one. Last night it was the Rays winning game two. And then later tonight the Padres will try to even the series up with the Dodgers after the Dodgers got a 5-1 to one win last night over San Diego to take the first game in, uh, in that NLDS series. So we talked a bunch about college football potentially being moved. There is a possibility that you're going to have an NFL game moved as well. There was concern as to whether or not the Saints were going to be able to play last week because of COVID-related issues. They were able to play in Detroit, and they got a win. And despite how it looked early, they ended up looking pretty impressive in the game despite being a little undermanned because of injuries and six starters not playing in the ballgame. So fast forward to this week, and now you have Hurricane Delta, barreling down on the state of Louisiana, uh, which could make it really hard for the Saints to play a home game. And so, Borky, where are they going to go? It's possible that the Saints play a home game on Monday night against the Los Angeles Chargers in Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay. Because the Colts will be in Cleveland, I believe, to play the Browns, and so they've got an open venue inside, which I guess kind of provides the Saints a little bit of home field comfort, I guess. Uh, But it's a free open venue, and uh, the teams are prepared to play that game there if needed. And the thing is, the the storm keeps pushing west, which is good for the city, but as we've mentioned, same thing applies with Ole Miss. If Louisiana gets hit by a Category 4 hurricane, I doubt the state would be real happy about allocating resources to play a football game, you know, an hour east of the storm damage. They're going to want all the resources possible to go towards recovery and relief, I would imagine. Given the size of this storm also that it's expected to reach by the time it makes landfall, I mean, being an hour east of Lake Charles or whatever the the distance is, I mean, you you still have New Orleans in a hurricane warning area, right? It's still possibly impacted, yes. And on the eastern side, which is, isn't that the more dangerous side of a storm? Isn't that what we've learned through the years? Is it the eastern side? Anyway, I'm not going to try to be a meteorologist in this. Uh, <laughs> we need to, uh, to get Kelso, and if he's listening, congrats on the new baby girl, by the way. But yeah, our, beautiful. Our uh, resident uh, hurricane tracker. Um, need to get him to tell us exactly what that is. He might be flying it right now unless he got paternity leave. Yeah, let's see. Um, New Orleans technically is in the tropical storm watch zone as of 2 o'clock Eastern today. So as of about an hour and a half ago, I'm sorry, two and a half hours ago, uh, New Orleans was in a watch area. Basically, a couple of parishes east of Morgan City, that is the edge of the hurricane watch zone. There is nobody that is currently under a hurricane warning, but that's because of the... uh, uh, just kind of the tenuous nature of the storm and not knowing exactly where it's going to uh, make landfall. So you've got Tropical Storm Watch just east of Houston, and then the two counties on the southeastern edge of the state of Texas are where the Hurricane Watch begins. It extends across the Louisiana coast over to Morgan City and then two parishes to the east 
which means the Hurricane Watch area is just to the southwest of New Orleans. And then you've got from New Orleans over to the southwesternmost county of uh, the Mississippi Gulf Coast. I'm not sure. Which, I, I can't remember what the order of the three counties is across the Gulf Coast, but, you know, a county and a half to the west of Biloxi is where the Tropical Storm Watch area ends. That's at least as we stand right now. So that's going to develop. So Saints, Monday Night Football, the uh, story came from the guys at The Athletic, Jeff Duncan and Zach Kiefer, who covered the Saints for The Athletic. Colts were reportedly told by the league there's a possibility the Saints game against Los Angeles on Monday Night Football will be played at Lucas Oil Stadium. NFL is considering moving the Week 5 game because of Hurricane Delta. Uh, Brian McCarthy, who's a spokesman for the NFL, said, We always have contingency plans for all games. We had plans for the wildfires in California last month but never had to act on them, but we will continue to monitor developments in the area. It's very early in the process. Saints and league officials are reportedly monitoring the storm throughout Wednesday before deciding if they will evacuate on Thursday. Team is off today. They would travel via charter after a Thursday workout if the game is relocated per uh, that story at The Athletic. So a lot of moving parts, and Southern Miss's game is one that's very much in question as well. They're supposed to play in Hattiesburg at 3.30, I guess 2.30 Central Time on Saturday afternoon. It seems really unlikely that that game would be played on Saturday in Hattiesburg, although I've not seen an official word from Conference USA at this point. No, just statements, as Luke alluded to yesterday. That's kind of all we've got to go by, but I'm with you. I would be surprised. We've gotten uh, this question a couple of times, um, and so I'll just ask you on behalf of them, why not just move the game to Tuscaloosa? What what would be stopping them from doing that? Well, the track of the storm, I guess when you look at Saturday, that's what you'd be looking at. Um, See, I was looking at a track. I mean, I guess potentially you could move it to Tuscaloosa. I mean, maybe the only concern in moving it to Tuscaloosa and playing it there on Saturday would be Ole Miss traveling back west into whatever's left behind after the game on late Saturday night. I mean, that's really the only thing that I could come with. And we got a couple of suggestions of that on the uh, the ceasefire text line. Somebody said, just move the game to Tuscaloosa and we'll play you in Oxford the next two years. And according to Google, you are right. It, it is the east side of a hurricane that is the worst, according to Google. Um, random question here, but we're fine with random. College football note. I don't know if you guys watched any of this or saw any of the highlights. So speaking of college football, what are your thoughts on North Dakota State quarterback Trey Lance? I'll be honest with you. I didn't watch that game Saturday. Yeah, me either. I have seen. I mean, he did win a national championship last year with them. I don't know if you had a chance to watch that game. The FCS championship is always so funny. It's early in the morning in Dallas now, and it's like the sun is always rising during the game. It feels like, for some reason, it feels like it's seven a.m. when you watch that game. I don't know why. It's just hmm. this weird hazy. Um, I mean, he's a player. The question is whether or not uh, he will be able to adjust to the speed of the NFL because even though he's on the best team in the FCS, which, I mean, that might hurt him as well. The competition he's seeing is so vastly different. And it's a dramatic step from what he's seeing versus what even Trevor Lawrence is seeing. So 
can he be NFL ready is the question. Because, I mean, he's got all the tools. I, I watched one game of his in my life, and you look at him and say, yeah, NFL quarterback, for sure. But can that game translate from the FCS, which is a massive step down than the games you watch every Saturday, to the NFL? Guys have been able to do it. Tony Romo, Carson Wentz, um, a guy that's starting for the Jets here coming up soon because Sam Darnold's shoulders hurt. But it's worked for a few guys. Can he be that next guy is is the question. Can he adapt? You know, what we think of him, and I'm not dodging the question at all. What we think of him is irrelevant because apparently the NFL scouts love him. They've got they've got him as the number three prospect. In some cases, the number two prospect at the quarterback position for the upcoming draft behind only Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. And in some cases, there's some teams that seem to like him more than Justin Fields. I, maybe I'm wrong for this, but taking if you had let's say the second or third pick in the draft or the fifth pick in the draft, whatever it was, and you needed a quarterback. In some ways, it feels to me like taking Trey Lance in front of Justin Fields would kind of be like taking Mitchell Trubisky in front of Deshaun Watson. That's probably not a fair comparison, and I'm not trying to knock Trey Lance, but you have a proven commodity at the major Power 5 level that has won who fits the mold of the new style quarterback in the NFL, big arm, but also the ability to make plays with his feet, which Trey Lance does as well now, same type guy. But the sample size that you've seen with Justin Fields is against the best competition there is to offer in college football, and that's just not the case with Trey Lance. And that's not a knock on Trey Lance. It's really not. But if I was picking with the third pick of the draft and Trevor Lawrence was off the board and I had to choose between Justin Fields who played some as a freshman, sparingly, was unbelievable as a sophomore, and everybody expects him to be unbelievable this year as a junior. Or I could take Trey Lance with one year and one game in terms of experience at the FCS level. That's an easy decision for me. But again, that's just me, and it only takes one team to love you. So, we'll see. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad. We'll be right back. Interesting story out of Houston. In the wake of the Bill O'Brien firing as head coach and general manager of the Houston Texans, Bill O'Brien got into a heated exchange with Texans star J.J. Watt during a recent practice, ESPN has confirmed. The incident allegedly happened prior to the Week 3 loss to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Sources confirmed to ESPN that, quote, a verbal blow-up at practice, close quote, heard two weeks ago with one source telling ESPN's Diana Rossini that the incident was when O'Brien lost the team. What does J.J. Watt have to say about that? I'm not going to talk about what happened at practice or what conversations were had or whatever it may be. The situation is what the situation is, and we, right now we have a fresh start, and we had a good practice today, and we're looking forward to Jacksonville. He added this, when you're 0-4, obviously things need to change. I mean, it wasn't working. 
I appreciate and respect what we had. We won four division titles in six years with Bill, and I appreciate that and that time. But obviously this year we're 0-4 and stuff wasn't working. When you have the talent that we have, specifically at the quarterback position in this league, we can't be 0-4. Um, J.J. Watt also said, the one thing I'll say about Bill O'Brien is he always stood up for his players. He tried to do whatever possible to support his players and give his players the absolute best support. Deshaun Watt, uh, Watson said it was just business. His quote was, I have the utmost respect for Coach O'Brien for getting me to Houston, teaching me what he taught me in the four years I've been here. The discipline, just everything as a person, getting ready for professional football. He did a lot of amazing things to help me get to two Pro Bowls and win the AFC South every year that I've played a full year. So I have all the respect for him and the things, but that's just how the business goes. So the two biggest stars for the Houston Texans are saying the right things in the wake of a head coach being fired. But if you read between the lines there, that's two guys that believe the decision that was made by the brass of the Houston Texans was the right decision. Agreed? Agreed. And J.J. did not confirm it, but he confirmed it with that response to that question about the incident. That is him saying that absolutely happened without him saying it happened. That's crazy, though. When you lose J.J. Watt, who's a three-time defensive player of the year in the NFL, and I know it's a quarterback league, but at least for now, J.J. Watt is still the biggest leader of that team, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's When you lose J.J. Watt, you're done. You're talking about J.J. Watt, you go back to that a couple years ago when he raised all that money for Houston. Houston's going to ride or die with J.J. Watt. They, they can live without Bill O'Brien. And, I mean, he just, he just made so many questionable personnel decisions. Trying to wear both hats, is just it just doesn't work for the most part in this day and age of the NFL. And unless you're just a superstar, which he, Bill O'Brien clearly was not. And, I mean, he made trades. He made trades the way Borky's a gamer. He made trades the way we make trades on Madden. It's like, you know what, I'm going to see if I can't get some, some picks here. Who can I unload? Ah, I'll just create a player. It'll be all right. Do you think that gives other NFL teams pause on hiring college coaches? Because there's some... I, I don't know if it's real or not, but I know he's been asked about it multiple times, and he has not said no. And that's Dabo Sweeney as a potential head coach in Houston. Well, I, think, I think Dabo would be terrible in the NFL. I agree. But do you think Bill O'Brien's, if you want to call it a failure, after Chip Kelly being a disaster in the NFL, do you think that's going to cause GMs and owners of teams to be reluctant to hire a college head coach to be the NFL head coach? Because people talk about Lincoln Riley so much being an NFL guy. And now, I mean, Dabo is not saying no when he's been asked multiple times if he's interested in the job. (coughs) Which he'd be crazy not to be. Clemson fans are just, oh, he would never go there. Y- yes, he would. It's the NFL. Yes, he would. But if you're Houston, do you look at him, especially after what just happened? I don't look at Dabo, but I look at Dan Mullen. Mullen is a guy who I think would, would do well in the NFL because the thing he doesn't like to do the most is the thing you don't have to do in the NFL, and that's recruiting. I think the the biggest thing for, for college guys is – in college, the head coach is all powerful. You know, hey, you're not going to let them talk to these players. 
hey, we're not going to discuss this. You can't do that in the NFL. You That's can't. Right. You don't. You just don't have the same amount of. You know, you're not the king, and and we're living in your in your in your kingdom. You know, there's just rules that that govern all that kind of stuff, and you can't get away from it. And I think I think a lot of college guys, they have trouble adjusting to that. Isn't Eric Bieniemy probably the leading candidate? I mean, if he's not, there's going to be a lot of controversy around whoever they hire. To me, the the question, and I heard somebody saying this, talking about it at the national level. I think it was Brock Hewitt, actually. said the one concern that he would have about Dan Mullen would be whether or not he would handle the criticism and the microscope that goes with being an NFL head coach. Lane Kiffin has talked about the fact that the, the mismanagement of games at the college level goes almost unnoticed by the writers who cover it. Like, it's not even a storyline after the game. Oh, yeah. But if you mismanage a two-minute drill or a four-minute situation in the NFL, it's like the lead story. Yeah. And you get so we talk- crucified for it. We talk about this stuff all the time, you know, and just in passing. Oh, need a hand-raised guy to call time out here. You know, we just sort of make a little joke about it. Then we move on to the next thing. Do that in the NFL. And Buddy, Skip, and Shannon, and Max, and Stephen A. are screaming at each other the next day about what an idiot you are. And even uh, local media is different even. Yeah. I mean, yes. God, a coach in New York City. Good luck. Which, by the way, an NFL Network reporter said that Adam Gase is going to be a candidate, and I laughed out loud. A candidate for, Houston for job? For the Houston job. And my first thought was, the nut house. Gase's agent is really good at his job, apparently. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. If Adam Gase was as good a coach as his agent is as being an agent, Adam Gase would probably win Super Bowls. Hmm. Fascinating times in the NFL. You know, we've talked about college football this year and whether or not teams will make changes in a COVID year because of the monetary impact, I don't think that even enters the conversation in the NFL. In terms of hiring and firing coaches, just another year. Just another year. Yeah. And generally speaking, the coaching contracts that you're dealing with in the NFL are nothing like the coaching contracts that you're dealing with in college where you've got buyouts. You know, eight years of guaranteed money. Or, or 10 years in the case of, of Jimbo. Yeah. I mean, if well, Texas A&M wanted to fire, fire Jimbo Fisher after this season, and this is year three, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is year three. So 10 years, $75 million, making $7.5 million a year. So back $22.5 million out of $75, you'd still owe Jimbo half. over $50 million if you wanted to get rid of him. And there's no poaching. I mean... For the most part, there's not NFL coaches going to other NFL head coaches taking other NFL jobs because there's rules that surround the interview process and things like that. There's no buyouts. There's no well, if we fire you, this guy, we're going to owe him twenty five million dollars. There's none of that. It's craziness. Yeah, for there's example, very few bad NFL jobs too. Like it, once you're there, you, true, yeah. you don't need to jump to another one because you've got a pretty good one where you're at. Right. I, mean, I, if, I if would say. Go, from, go ahead. Well, and I was just to say, one thing that makes Houston a little less attractive this year is they don't have a first-round pick, they don't have a second-round pick. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. But you've got a good young team. It's not like, 
I mean, you'd like to have some players, but you, you know, you're not. There's not some pressing need. And on top of it, it's the draft. You can always find a way to trade your way back in if you need to. Just mortgage twenty two and twenty three and twenty four in the uh, draft. You don't have to mor- I, I wouldn't think you have to mortgage to. that much to get like the twenty to get back in at like twenty six, twenty seven. If there's a guy that you really like there, yeah, you know, maybe give away. You're not next trying to get a quarterback. First. No, but I mean, look at what Bill O'Brien ran off. Oh, yeah. He ran off Jadavian Clowney and he ran off DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, that's two elite players. And kind of stabbed his previous GM in the back. Yeah. And took over GM duties as well. He was going to get lose this job one way or the other by the season's end. But pushing on J.J. Watt and, and forcing that to happen, I mean, that there's no, there's no going forward from there. Yeah. Sports Talk Mississippi with you, streaming at supertalk.fm. We are glad to have you along on this Wednesday afternoon. Don't forget, you've got the high school football scoreboard show from Mississippi Farm Bureau Insurance Companies coming your way tomorrow night. Special edition because so many games in the state of Mississippi have been moved to Thursday. Scoreboard show will be from 10 until 11.30. And then the preview show is going to turn into a little bit more of a recap show at 6 o'clock on Friday. Take a timeout and be right back. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi on this Wednesday. Thanks for being with us. Going to be part of the conversation you can on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395, 601-879-4395. Charlie, Ole Miss, Alabama, under 70, is the easiest football bet ever put out there with the expected weather on Saturday. Just tuned in, but thought I should say that. Is it? Now, what happens if they move it, though? Just hypothetically, if you did take the under 70 and they move the game to Friday and the weather's impeccable, are you locked in? Because if they do move that game to Friday and the weather's impeccable, I would not, in my wildest dreams, take under 70. Even if they're playing in the rain. I mean, Ole Miss gave up 400 yards rushing to Kentucky. Yeah, Alabama can still run the football. Yeah, but they haven't a lot so far. I mean, Alabama's offense, it's explosiveness. Well, they haven't, but they I, I believe they can. Najee Harris is a good back. They have a good offensive line. Yeah, but getting to that 70 mark when running is the primary way you go about it just takes, I mean, unless you're ripping off a bunch of 40, 50, 60, 70-yard runs, it takes longer. Yeah. And if, if the game is shortened then it seems like that would slow things down a bit. Saban doesn't strike me as a kind of coach that's ever like let emotion drive decisions, but the dynamic between he and Kiffin is something I'm interested in this week because you know, I mean, the headlines are going to be written, they already have been, about the dynamic between the two coaches, and there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on this game, but the game's probably not going to match up to the attention it's going to receive because one team is significantly better than the other from a roster perspective, that's just reality. 
And after the game, you're going to get the same thing. So Kiffin shows college football, he's still the king and all that stuff without any context. Lane Kiffin's been asked a lot about that this week, and he's said all of the right things. He's been funny at times, was on Dan Patrick's show earlier, and said that uh, he's worried that Saban's getting elderly. It's been funny and good, but you don't hear Saban talking about Kiffin at all. I mean, he really just kind of downplays that. What do you think Nick Saban thinks about Kiffin, and do you think because of the way it ended he might be inspired to score a little more and not take his foot off the gas like he did in Columbia? I think Nick Saban only looks at one thing. And I think the one thing that he only looks at is what's best for his football team. Full stop. Full stop. Look, I mean, I'm not saying they were best buds or they were super chummy. But... Didn't Nick Saban absolutely pour it on Hugh Freeze in one game? Or was that post-Hugh Freeze? Those were both Matt Luke games. Uh, So Freeze still coached in 16. Yep, they beat Ole Miss like a drum in 16 in Oxford. And then... Wait, no, that's not right. No, that game was close. It was 17 and 18 where they went just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that struck me as angry Nick. Yeah. But those so are that Matt was Luke games. That was interim year Matt Luke and then the next year Matt Luke where they just yes. absolutely lit up the scoreboard. And then last year, Alabama still scored plenty, but Ole Miss had some success in that game. Put some points on the board at least. What oh, they scored? Twenty four? Like they had thirty two to twenty four or something. I thought, I thought Ole Miss got thirty in that game. Yeah, they may have. Luckily, not only do I have a device, but I have a website bookmarked. They got thirty one. Yeah. What was the final? Fifty nine thirty one. So in the last three games that Alabama has faced Ole Miss, they've scored in the sixties, the sixties, and the high fifties. Right. It was sixty six, then sixty two. Then 59. It's trending the right way. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny you asked that question. I, Borky, I was on with Cole Kubelik on three-man front in Birmingham earlier today. He asked me something along those lines. And I think Lane Kiffin's saying all the right things this week. He's praising Nick Saban, as, as he should. I think largely, now you may not have liked the way it ended, but I think... Nick Saban is probably thankful for what Lane Kiffin brought to the table as his offensive coordinator. They had a heck of a lot of success in that three-year window with him as the offensive coordinator. And I think certainly that Lane Kiffin is thankful for what he learned under Nick Saban. How to run a program. And I think the reason that Lane Kiffin is not calling plays today as an offensive coordinator, one, he trusts Jeff Levy, but two... He saw that, I mean, Nick Saban doesn't call the defense at Alabama. He's heavily involved in the defensive game plan, knows everything that's going on in the program. He's not calling plays on game day, though. I think the way Lane Kiffin approaches running the program, he learned from Nick Saban. So, I don't think they're text buddies, though, for what that's worth. 
Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. We're talking about the possibility of games being moved. We've already got uh, confirmation that LSU-Missouri is going to be played in Columbia, Missouri, instead of 8 o'clock Central Time in Baton Rouge on Saturday night. It's going to be played at 11 a.m. in Columbia, Missouri. Waiting to hear, and my understanding is some sort of an announcement is going to be made tonight or in the morning about the plans for Ole Miss and Alabama. I don't think, at least right now, that Friday is the first choice for anybody. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. Borky said that seems to make the most sense. I I don't necessarily disagree with that. But I don't get the impression that that is the most likely outcome at this point. So we'll wait and see. We'll see if they leave it where it is at 5 o'clock. They move it up to an earlier time slot on Saturday. They push it back to November. We'll just uh, we'll have to wait and see. Everybody a little bit tight-lipped about how those discussions are going right now, so not a, uh, a ton of information about that. What do you think Saban wants to do? Because <laughs> that's what's happening. Uh, all joking aside, seriously, what, if you were Nick Saban, because if you move the game to their mutual off week, that means LSU gets a bye before you play them, and obviously you do not. I doubt that Nick Saban wants to move it to December and play the week before the SEC championship because they're probably going to be in the SEC championship. So what do you think he's lobbying for right now? If I were Nick Saban, I wouldn't care. But I'm not Nick Saban, and he, you know, very attentive to every single detail. And so I'm sure he has an opinion on it. And I'm sure he's been asked about his opinion. But similar to the story with the, with LSU and Missouri, it's going to be the commissioner that decides. He will listen to opinions and perspectives from others, but ultimately he's going to decide based on what he believes is the, the best scenario. Yeah, and he'll run it by Greg Sankey, and uh, they'll make a decision from there. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of thinking the other way around, but I, I hear what you're saying. I hear uh, hear what you're saying. Um, hey, Dad, it does not appear that there's anything severe that is going to affect Mississippi State and Kentucky. I did look at the forecast for Lexington, and there is an 80% chance of rain on Saturday. You know, how heavy that rain is, exactly when it falls, is it during the game on Saturday night? I don't know the answers to those questions. Do you think there's a significant advantage one way or the other if it rains? Your first thought would be advantage Kentucky, right, because they want to run the ball and and, and Mississippi State does not uh, as much. Um, But that said, I mean, in Pullman, Washington, you know, a lot of a lot of bad weather up there, rain, snow, and the offense seemed to click just fine. So we'll have to see how it pans out. My my first thought is, yeah, it would give Kentucky a, a little bit of an advantage, though. Eighty percent chance of rain on Saturday. Ninety percent chance of rain on Sunday. I would say the good news, and the part that's probably more important than the rain, is the wind. And the wind doesn't look like it's going to be significant as you would expect with the hurricane approaching or the remnants of a hurricane pro- approaching, the wind is going to be out of the south-southeast. 
what looks like 10-ish miles an hour, I mean, based on the, the forecast right now. Yeah. So, you know, probably not a huge deal. I mean, my inclination would be that there's probably a little bit of an advantage there for Kentucky. Yeah. That is an artificial turf field. Yeah. So, yeah, artificial turf field. Hey, Dad, the the only other thing that I would say is if K.J. Costello had shown himself to be wildly accurate, maybe that's not a, a good description, pinpoint accurate, then I might look at that as, yeah, no big deal, really. But that hasn't exactly been the case. I mean, ball security yeah. has been an issue, no, both through correct. the air and while holding the football. Yeah, so it's it's going to be a concern for Mississippi State if, if if the weather is bad. There's just no question about it. When you're a team that wants to pass the ball and when you're a team that you know your quarterback has had some uh, some turnover issues, that a sloppy field and, and a wet ball are, are problems that you don't want to have. Uh, and like I said, you're playing one of the better running teams uh, in the conference, a team that rushed for over 400 yards a week ago. So, yeah, th- those are those are factors for sure to consider. Um, Ceasefire text line. My restaurant in Oxford has prepared for a game. What do we do? Throw out the food? I'll send you my address. <laughs> yeah. I understand where you're coming from. I mean, I, I, I do. But there's some things that are just beyond the control of the schools that are hosting the game. I really understand where this person's coming from uh, as a former restaurant manager. And there have been times where you're like, hey, we're going to do this. Okay. And then you prep and you get ready for it. And they call you two days before. Yeah, we're not doing it anymore. Well, you just do the best you can. I almost got fired from a Zaxby's because of a situation like this. So that it was my first job. I was 15, worked at a Zaxby's that opened up down the street for five months or so uh, until two-a-day started, and the manager told me, I have to decide between my career and football, and you don't say that to a 15-year-old because the answer is football. But um, at the end of the night... So, that, that is bold of him calling I, you working at a Zaxby's as a 15-year-old your career. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, see ya. But um, nobody fried those tenders up like Borky. He could see the potential. <laughs> Five star talent could be working in corporate right now. Yeah, you guys would never know me, which there, would probably there's be a, a there's bonus an alternate in your universe life. where where Michael Borky is like a twenty unit franchisee for Zaxby's. <laughs> he invented tongue torch sauce. Uh, but so you make all this food. And it sits under the the heat lamps all night, and at the end of the night, they don't let you bring it home with you. They would say, you have to throw it out. So 15-year-old me thought it was a great idea to text some of my buddies that, you know, we'd close at 10, at 9.45, hey, come order something, and I would just load their plates up with all the leftover food. I'm talking like 40 chicken tenders after ordering a four-piece? Oh, I yes. thought you said a four, 40-piece. My bad. 40-piece. Yeah. And so I would stack their thing, and, and we would eat all the food after. Because it's either that or it gets thrown away, and I got caught doing it, and I got screamed at for doing that. I got to keep my job for another few weeks until the whole you know, football or your you know, 7 25 an hour job at Zaxby's. 
Um, but yeah, I got that close to getting fired. I mean, I'm talking, we would, at 945, there'd be four or five cars lined up of my buddies that I, I would just stack these plates full and, and they would take it and we'd close up and we'd go eat. So did somebody narc on you or did like the owner or the manager find it, see it? I think somebody saw it. Because they would check. It was bizarre. They would come check to make sure you were throwing the food away. And after a while, the the scheme got out of hand, and there was literally no food left over to throw away. And uh, I, I got caught. Hmm. They, they, didn't, they didn't have an issue with us taking home the leftovers at the Papa. And that's how my freshman year in my dorm, I never had any problems getting beer in or getting caught doing anything because I just kept my RAs in, in, uh, in pizza. <laughs> So how many would you walk out with at night? Uh, you know, well, they, the one, the, my freshman year, there was a buffet. So whatever was left at the end of the night, I mean, I would just a buffet on Papa John's. Yeah, yeah, we had one. Yeah, it was on campus. We were in the uh, cafeteria. Oh, okay. And so, gotcha. yeah, I would just, I'd walk out of there with four or five pies and just knock on a door like, hey, here's tonight's shipment. I was, I was, I was like a low grade drug dealer, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> my product was pizza, though. Hmm. Um, what was your first job? Mine? Yeah, both of yours. Your very first real actual job. Not like cutting grass for your neighbors, but like where you had to go apply and taxes right. got taken out of your check. It was cutting grass. I worked at Burger King. Nice. Yeah. I worked at Foot Locker at one point in high school. Or maybe it was like even in junior high. The uh, the black polyester pants and the uh, the black and white shirt and they always they taught you you got to upsell people you got to sell shoelaces you got to sell odor eaters you got to sell you know sneaker keepers or whatever else in addition to the uh, the shoes it was fairly short lived I think that was one where um, probably pre driver's license like might have even been like mom had to drop me off from work and pick me up when the shift was over I think. Um, but no, first real job that, frankly, still exists today was grass cutting. Started doing that when I was 12. You know, started in the neighborhood and kind of grew from there. Why'd you say that's not a real job? No, I meant like just your neighbors throwing you a 20 to cut their grass. Yeah. No, and I had no trailer, so it was like we had an, an old riding mower, and I'd like hold on to the push mower and pull it behind me up the street. A final Atlanta wins two zip over Miami to go up two games to none in the National League Division Series. That means the Atlanta Braves are now one win away. And playing for a chance to go to the World Series. It's a fun Braves team. They're good offensively. They are good on the mound. They've been good all season. Wonder. Ian Anderson, five and two thirds, did not allow a run, eight strikeouts. Melanson got the uh, save in the ball game. Couple of solo home runs were the difference. Dansby Swanson in the bottom of the second inning, uh, second inning, and Diarno hit one in the bottom of the fourth inning. That was all the scoring in this game. Miami could not muster a run. But not a ton of offense by either side. Braves two runs, four hits. Miami no runs, three hits. But the Braves in a great spot now to advance to the NLCS.
wonder what crushing way, very creative crushing way, they're going to lose this time. Just don't don't talk like that because they're probably going to be playing the Dodgers. A cardboard cutout is going to get blown onto the field and cause somebody to drop <laughs> the final out of a game. <coughs> Next guy comes tough. up to bat, hits a home run. Atlanta sports in a nutshell. You're being tough on Atlanta. It has, man. And like their soccer team, I guess, won the MLS Cup two years ago or something like that. And um, that doesn't count. They've been beaten up in so many different ways. Like the Hawks have just been bad for a long time. They just stink out loud. Um, the Falcons, I mean, they blew a 28 to 3 lead with six minutes to go in the third quarter of a Super Bowl. And now they just blow leads for fun. It's all different ways that their teams break their hearts. Never good, blown leads, good can never get over the hump. They get it from all sides. There was that one World Series. And it was glorious for Braves fans. What year was that? 95? 1995. So people like in their 40s don't even really remember it. Sure they do. I, I remember it. I was 20. I remember I that remember. well. You guys were 20 and 95? Ugh. I was, yeah. I was 15 and 95. Huge Braves fan at the time. I mean, you got to remember, that, that run started in 91. Well, wasn't 91 the worst of first team, or was it 90 that was worst of first? I mean, that was when the... That's when the tomahawk shop got rolling at the old Atlanta Fulton yeah. County Stadium, and it was a big deal, and they were fun. And Mark Lemke and Jeff Blauser and Terry Pendleton, and that may have been even before Fred McGriff came over. You know, in the in the short years thereafter, they added Javi Lopez to the mix and Chipper Jones, and at one point you had Otis Nixon in left field and David Justice in right field, and. Man, those were and and the young guns on the mound. You know the combination of Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, and Steve Avery. And McGriff Mark showed Wollers. up in '93. Was Mark Wollers the original closer? Or was it? Uh, it was Wollers first, and then later came the guy Rocker. who got in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I'll never Rocker. forget Fred McGriff showing up because it cost the Giants. Prime dog. Say what? Giants. Cost the Giants. With him showing up. Giants won 103 games and didn't go to the playoffs. Mm. I still that's believe that's hurt. that's the reason the wild card exists, is the Giants go 103-59 and 59 and don't go to the playoffs. Was that the one where like, the Braves won on a Sunday afternoon or something and they were showing the game on whatever the video board was at that time, like in the stadium? And there was Probably. this huge celebration. Does that sound right? Probably. Because yeah, the Giants lost on Sunday to the Dodgers to be eliminated. That's Bonds' first year in San Fran. Scott and Clinton says when Sid Bream took two trips to all rear end from second to win. Oh, man. Those were fun. Jeremy says, my dad got me tickets for my 10th birthday to Game 7 of the World Series in 91. I got offered $1,000 cash by a ticket scalper and turned it down. 10-year-old says no to a grand. So $1,000 in 91? 
Are yeah, you going to look like do inflation or something? That's yep. <laughs> twenty five hundred bucks now, right? It might be more than that. Maybe three grand. Survey says. So, so says, was it prime time in that run in the nineties? Oh yeah. That's Coach Prime to y'all know. It's yeah, it's about two grand. So, that's a, that means you were raised right. Your dad did a good job. Knew that, that moment. Yeah, never, I mean, let, let's let's say that. So, so Obi and I have this ongoing deal in place that whenever the Yankees next make it to the World Series, we're gonna go. I'm gonna take him. So, Borky, if. He and I have got tickets to Game 7 of the World Series at Yankee Stadium, and some scalper offers him two grand. He's not taking that. Oh, no. We're going to the ball game. Making a memory that will last a lifetime. Jeremy says, I also got thrown a ball by Brian Hunter. Got a buddy that said, don't forget about the great Raphael Belliard that was part of that. Uh, that's right. There's another name. Memory uh, memory lane stuff. Oh, yeah. And then somewhere along the way, I left the uh, the Braves behind for the Yankees. They, you know, full stop transition. Yeah. Jeff and Grenada, did Cross say Obi? Great name. Yes, but it's OBY, not OBI. What prompted the change? The Yankees started winning, and he's just like, I can't. <laughs> I got to. No, no, that wasn't it. I had a buddy that uh, had pitched at Ole Miss that ended up getting drafted by the Yankees and kind of started following it and. Went and saw a game at old Yankee Stadium, and I was hooked. The old stadium's so much cooler than the new stadium. Here you go. Had two uh, two tickets to Game 6 of the 1995 series. Braves open up with wins in Game 1 and Game 2. So I had to pull for Cleveland twice, which was weird. That's from Tom. <laughs> That's a great That's story. That's that funny. is really good. I love that. Jeff says, Richard, will you go to Arlington if the Yankees make it to the World Series this year? You know, my wife and I had that conversation the other day. And I think the answer is probably not. And maybe that's a mistake. I mean, you're, you're talking about, what, 11, 12,000 tickets. It's, it, it's just not going to feel the same. It's not going to be the same. And the deal that Obi and I have had is we would go to Yankee Stadium to watch a World Series game. So, probably not. Well, they'll buy themselves back into that position sometime soon. I hope so. I absolutely hope so. Mike says it'll cost more than two grand face value the next time the Yankees make it to the World Series. True. You might be onto something there. I was looking at ticket futures a couple of years ago because you know it looked like they had a chance, and you were looking at you know twelve, fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred bucks a ticket. Hmm. That's reminds me, of, reminds me of the guy that had tickets to the Super Bowl and fell asleep. You remember that guy? Say that again. Uh, the the Super Bowl this past year, he went viral. Um, in the middle of a play, guy with his phone is recording the play, and then slowly pans over, and there's a man in the lower bowl just just asleep. You know, arms crossed, like head down, mm-hmm. just asleep during the Super Bowl. Probably some company that he did business with had given him those tickets. I hope so, because if he, <laughs> he paid was just them. there because somebody else gave them to him. 
Uh, it says getting beat by the Yankees eight World Series games probably did it for Richard hanging it up on the Braves. <laughs> Jim Lehrer's no. turned him. That wasn't it. How about this from Laurie? I bought a package to the playoffs in the World Series in 1991. Four tickets to the three middle games for $1,200 sat 20 rows behind home plate. What would that cost now? More than twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, twelve hundred dollars might not get you in the for 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 three games. That might not get you in the, into the stadium. Yeah, that's probably a twenty rows behind home plate. That's probably a three games. Probably six, seven, eight thousand dollar package. Yeah. See, this is what I love. So, buddy of mine just sent me a message. Said my dad took me to the World Series in. Hold on, I gotta open it. Dad took me to the World Series in 1968 and saw Bob Gibson strike out 17. Denny McLean lost. History made, and I was there. Most importantly, memory with my daddy. Priceless. That might be my favorite thing about baseball. And not that you can't do that at a basketball game or a football game. But going with your kids to a World Series game, I mean, that is that is absolutely at the top of my sports bucket list. Take my kids to a World Series game. Sports Talk Mississippi, we'll be back. I'm not turning, trying to turn today into like a sports memories show. Um, but I do love these. It would not be the worst show we've done, that's for sure. This is awesome stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I, people are texting in about stuff that stands out, stands out to them. Um, Jay from the Res says he saw Tom Seaver throw a no-hitter in Atlanta on his birthday. Ooh, that's a good one. David says he went to the World Series game in Atlanta with Glacier. Remember him? Like Like the wrestler? Blood runs cold? That's awesome. Uh, I was also at 1995 World Series Game 6 with three buddies. Upper level, center field. David Justice hit a solo home run. Only run the Braves got. Tickets for that were $55. Yeah. Whew. It's a different world we live in now. So cool. And that was... So 95 was against the Indians, and that was right after David Justice had called out the Braves fans. So, Borky, you, you were going at us earlier about, were you, were you guys even alive then? Yeah, what do you remember about 1990? I remember a lot about that run. Dave Justice went after the Braves fans for being kind of fair weather and not into it. Not the way that, um, not, not the way that it was in Cleveland. Jacobs Field was still brand new at that point, and that place rocked. I mean, the whole Cleveland Rocks deal. And uh, Justice called out the Braves fans. Is that where that came from? No. Oh, I was about to say, I know the song, but again, I I was not alive at that point, so I had no idea that it came from baseball. But it did not. Wasn't Cleveland Rocks the theme song for Drew Carey's TV show? Yeah. Give you a... Friendly dollar, if you can tell me who uh, who sang it on that show. Who's the who's the group that sang that song on that show? No idea. The presidents of the United States of America. 
Really? Yeah. Wow. Great. Big two-hit wonder there. Yeah, and the other one was... Well, no, no, they had, that was not one of their hits. They had Peaches and uh, Lump. Was that Lump? lump. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was Lump. I think I had that what a weird back band. in the BMJ, uh, BMG Music Club days. Oh, oh <laughs> press, man. Press. 12 CDs yeah. for a penny. That's right. I still probably owe them $8,000 in late fees and stuff. I never paid. Yeah, and how many different times did you, like, re-enroll? Oh, a couple. Uh, Mike in Oxford says, I missed a Hank Aaron foul ball in Atlanta by six inches as a 10-year-old. Greg is mad at us. He sent us a bunch of text messages. I'm not... I don't know. Trying to... Greg, you're mad at us for not reading uh, a bunch of messages. I just didn't think they fit. Greg went from telling me he loved me to telling me or telling you that I'm your enemy and you need to look out for me in a series yeah. of text messages over nine minutes. Hey, Call I got me a message that too. said, don't forget the most unathletic-looking picture ever, Greg Maddox. So we were talking about the very beginning of that Braves run, though, that started in 1990. And I, I sent this message. I said, Maddox didn't come over from the Cubs until 93. First few years of that run were without him. Remember, you had Charlie Liebrandt in the rotation for the Atlanta Braves back then. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. But so, so if I remember, you may have to correct me on this. But the four pitcher rotation for the Braves in '91, I think, was Glavin, Smoltz, Steve Avery, and Charlie Liebrandt. Does that sound right? If only we had a device. Let's see here: Glavin, Avery, Liebrandt, Smoltz, and pressing game started here. Is a, it I, I been a four-man rotation in a World Series. I would. Well, I'm just trying to look at like the whole the whole season. Game started. Yeah, nobody else started more than ten games that year, and that was Pete Smith. Nah, uh, who could forget Pete Smith, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who was the saves leader that year? Oh man, you'll never get it. Juan Berenguer, <laughs> Senior Smoke. You're talking about from '91. Yeah. Wow. The, the saves on that, that team, Baron Gare had 17. Alejandro Pena had 11. Mike Stanton had 7. Kent Merker had 6. Kent Merker? Yeah. Good name grab there. 1982 Atlanta old-timers game. Saw Hank Aaron hit a home run. Got to meet Bobby Richardson and Warren Spong. Nice. Did you speaking of old timers games? Did you see this thing going around about Bob Gibson who passed away last week? He did. They said that the last pitch he ever threw, some guy hit a grand slam off of him. The next time the guy saw him was at an old timers game, and Gibson beamed him. <laughs> that is fantastic. That's vigilante justice right there. I, I love every bit of. There's no Bob Gibson story I don't like. I don't think. I mean, every one of them is great. I like this one from the 404. My mom was eight months pregnant with me in the womb at the game when Sid Bream slid in in the 92 NLCS game against the Pirates. You were at the game. So I claim that I was there. You were there. You were at the game. 100%. Somebody says, wild thing rocker out of the bullpen. Yeah, that was later. Yeah. And then we get a, a, a message that says, Dale Murphy, enough said. But that yeah, was earlier. There. Yeah, he wasn't even there. 
You know what my lasting memory for Dave Murphy is? Because there's a time when in like 1986 where he was my favorite player. Oh, yeah. He retired with how many home runs? It's 398, right? 398 home runs. Yeah. And he retired with the Colorado Rockies. I always thought he could have bunted two balls out of Coors Field in the early 90s to get to 400, in which case he's a Hall of Famer. Murphy's career is the perfect I-didn't-take-steroids arc. He was the best player in baseball for about a five-year span there, but then injuries just finally caught up to him. So you think he should have taken steroids? Oh, no, 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 no. Dale Murphy would never take steroids. That's like the world's most clean-cut guy. William in Belmont says he's got a signed Oakland A's rookie card from Reggie Jackson. Woo! That's worth some money, I bet. Okay, this Tommy 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 sending us this one. It's maybe the best we've gotten so far. I challenge you to top it. Saw the nineteen sixty two All Star game at Wrigley, which by the way would have been in the daytime. You didn't get lights at Wrigley until eighty nine, I think it was. Or maybe it was in the yeah. early nineties. Just double check on that. They played the '89 LCS at night when the, when the Giants Cubs, so it had to be around then. Yeah, so '89 was the season. 1962 All Star Game at Wrigley. Stan Musial, Mickey Mantle. Year later, saw Sandy Koufax lose the game. Uh, lose a game the year that he won 30. Wow. Lance says the last player Bob Gibson faced was Don Kessinger and struck him out. Well, that's not what was going around the internet the other day. Uh, James in Hattiesburg. Sid Bream stayed at my parents' house in Hattiesburg in the early 2000s while speaking at a church event. My dad and I got to sit in the living room and watch some baseball with him. Very cool. Stewart and Laurel, 1976, Arlington, Texas. Mark Fidrich against Phil Necro on July 4th. Sat in right field behind Rusty Stubb. What a great name. Here's one. Saw the Washington Senators in 1969 in the old Arlington Stadium. That's like 14 ballparks ago for the Texas Rangers. And got Ted Williams' autograph. Just a shout-out to William and Belmont, by the way. Just a quick look around the Internet. There are Reggie Jackson rookie cards going for twenty grand, and they aren't signed. So Hello. First night game at Wrigley, according, according to Jeff, was August 8th, 1988. Okay. And due to rain, the game was finished the following day on August 9th. Two biggest upside uh, upsets in sports history. Mike says, Chipper Jones losing Rookie of the Year to Hideki, uh, Hideo Nomo and Peyton losing the Heisman to Woodson. Josh and Laurel saw Sammy Sosa hit home run number 600 in 2007. Tony and Laurel saw John Rocker close out a game in which Greg Maddox threw a two-hit shutout. It's good. Um, you got me over William here. William Belmont says I'm 55. You, you see what he said? Hey, Dad. It'll be worth more than that. Yeah, you're right. You're right, William. Keep that thing.
J.D. in Cleveland says, I'm 37 and remember all those Braves runs. Also remember Fulton County Press Box caught on fire the day Fred McGriff came for his Braves debut. All right, this has been fun. I promise we won't continue it for the entirety of the show. We'll get to some college football stuff. But this just kind of this went from here's the final score of the Braves playoff game to like Major League Baseball memory lane for a lot of you across the entire state of Mississippi. I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. To me, that's the best part of baseball. It's the memories that last forever that are associated with games that were important to you individually. Quote from Lane Kiffin. I'm curious if you agree with this. He's talking about Alabama. It's his great opponent, Coach Saban's best team that he's had as far as no holes. Is this Nick Saban's best team? Ooh. This team? Yeah, I mean, it's awfully early games. to be judging that. I know. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't. I've always thought Nick Saban's best team went ten and three. I thought that 2010 team that had Ingram and Richardson and Julio Jones was incredible. But they just lost a lot. Of, they lost games they shouldn't have lost. No, I, I mean, I can't. I can't say it's just way too early. Could that version of Alabama have beaten? two, three, four years ago version of Alabama? I mean, we're comparing I mean, when, when, when Tua was healthy, to, say what? You're comparing greatness with greatness. I mean, if they played two games, or if they played ten games, each team might win five. I mean, there's NFL guys all over the roster on both sides. Yeah. Just thinking about those weapons. When you had Calvin Ridley... And Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell and who's the fourth that I'm not thinking about? Who'd you say? Rudy? You said uh, Ruggs, I Judy, see, Smith. I didn't and, say Ruggs. Uh, oh, I didn't yeah. think about Judy either. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I went with Calvin Ridley and Jalen Waddell and Devontae oh, Smith. Well, Waddell and Ridley didn't play together. They didn't. That's right. No. They played better defense back then. They did. It's been a few years now where, let's not kid ourselves, it's not like they're bad on that side of the ball, but they're not as good. It's true, but but football is different than it was in 2010. It has evolved. Nowadays, giving up 24 points is a pretty good offensive or defensive performance, especially when your offense is scoring 45-plus. Yeah. And, And Lane Kiffin has brought up that Alabama is much different than they were when he was the head coach at Tennessee. So, you know, then you had to win, like, those grinded out in the trenches games. And that's not what Alabama does anymore. I mean, think about the about face that Nick Saban has made as a head coach. He wanted to run the ball, control the clock, have a nasty defense, some play action passing. And he kind of eased into the transition because we're not that far removed from Nick Saban talking about RPOs being the devil. He wanted it legislated out of the game. He wanted that in a hurry-up offense. Yeah, yeah. Bad that's for the game. That's why he's the best. You know, one thing I always say is there's so many coaches who would rather lose their own way than win with somebody else's. Saban doesn't have any of that. Saban just wants to win. So when he realized that football was going this way, he got on board and he became maybe the best at it in finding offensive coordinators who can run this kind of system. 
Yeah. And and maybe in his heart of hearts, Nick Saban prefers the game the way it was. Maybe he would still rather, just if it was oh, like, yeah. if, if you could say, I oh, could yeah. play this way or I can play this way, he might rather still run the ball and have low-scoring games that are controlled by defenses. He would totally rather win 17-13 to 13 than win 45-40. 100%. But if we're going to make a change, we're going to fully embrace it, and we're going to go get the best guys to do it. fascinating study almost not just in coaching but in leadership and and like being a ceo being willing to adapt to what works best at the time even if it's not your preferred method or what you feel most comfortable with or what you like the most well i really like the way that we've been doing this by paper should we really transition to computer okay i'll do it i don't like it but i'll do it oh wait our profits just went up 80% over the last three years. That's probably a good decision. Would Nick Saban be successful in whatever he was doing in life if he wasn't a coach? I think so. I think there's some people, it's just the way that they're wired. You know, some people are just born to be successful. Unless he was an anger management therapist. That's a good point. <laughs> You know what? If he was, though, he would be the calmest guy. He wouldn't get mad for anything. <laughs> He'd be the best darn anger management yeah. therapist like, the why, world why has ever so seen. Angry, guys? Let's just let's just bring it down a notch, all right? Let's talk about the process of de-escalation. All right? Zach Bingham is going to join us from A to Z Sports. He is based in Nashville. There's a lot to get to with Zach as well. You've got the uh, story that's going on with the Titans where you've had a couple more positives. You had the Titans practicing unauthorized at Montgomery Bell Academy in a small group setting, despite the NFL saying you can't do that, and head coach Mike Vrabel saying, please don't do that. And, oh, by the way, the Tennessee Volunteers just up the road a bit, or down the road a bit, to the east a bit, Having won eight in a row, off to a 2-0 and start, headed to Athens for a game with Georgia. That's some interesting sports stories happening in the state of Tennessee. Zach Bingham from A to Z Sports will co- uh, join us coming up next on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. Plus, for the college football fix, we'll give you our week two power rankings. What changed? That's coming up. Sports Talk Mississippi. Back with you, 5 o'clock hour, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Don't forget the C Spire text line is open to you at 601-879-4395. At C Spire, they're always asking the big question like, why wait for the next device to get the device you want? Right now you can get any iPhone $100 off at your local C Spire store and online at cspire.com. We're going to push the college football fix back just a bit so that we can visit with Zach Bingham from A to Z Sports in Nashville. Farm Bureau phone line, check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. Zach, always enjoy visiting with you. Appreciate your time this afternoon. I was just thinking for your sake, it's it's too bad there's nothing going on in the state of Tennessee, whether you're talking about the Titans or the, uh, the Vols, to talk about for you guys right now. Oh, I know. Uh, glad to be on. Thanks for having me. It's uh, It's been a, a whirlwind 2020, but then sports start back up, and Tennessee's 2-0, and and the Titans get off to a 3-0 and start, and then they have a COVID outbreak, and now their season is kind of up in question, at least in the last couple of weeks or days. So uh, plenty to talk about, but uh, a lot of 
unknowns moving forward. But uh, it's been exciting, to say the least. So let's start with the Titans. They are unable to play last week. It, you know, The initial conversation was about pushing it back, possibly playing on Monday night. And then, no, not going to be able to do it. A couple of more positive tests. You've also got the story of uh, them practicing unauthorized at Montgomery Bell Academy. So the uh, the good folks at NBA uh, lending a facility for some of the Titans to practice, uh, although they weren't supposed to be doing that. Uh, let's start there. What's the fallout from that story? Yeah, well, the big the big deal is is they practice September 30th, and there's some conflicting reports. Some say that the players were not informed to not practice uh, before then. Uh, we had a report out on a to z sportsnational.com that actually we just put out about an hour ago. We got some quotes and, and talked to some Titans players, and they told us that they weren't told not to meet uh, until October 1st, the following day. So okay. they're sticking to their story, and you know some of the NFL reports are, are conflicting that. So... Uh, it's it's been interesting here in the last uh, couple hours. Is there going to be punishment, or was that in a time window where that was before the new edict came down from uh, the NFL about protocols and gathering outside of team facilities and whatnot? So there still can be punishment, and what we've learned is them forfeiting games is off of the table. The NFL is not discussing that, but they sent down NFL personnel to Nashville this past weekend to get security tapes, to look at their facility, to make sure that they were following protocol. So I think that they're doing a full-fledged investigation to see if fines are warranted or if possibly they could take up draft picks. Uh, The NFL still hasn't decided, but the investigation is ongoing, and they've kind of been tight-lipped of what they're going to do. So we're all kind of waiting to see what the NFL finds out because, as we know, know, once – they're going to punish you if they want to punish you. So we're, we're kind of waiting. Bills-Titans supposed to happen on Sunday at noon in Nashville. A couple of undefeated teams. Josh Allen has thrown 12 touchdown passes through the first four games. Obviously, the Titans didn't play this weekend. Best guess at this point, does this game happen? My gut feeling is that it will not. Because okay. 22 players and staff members combined – have tested positive for COVID-19 in the last two weeks. They had two back-to-back days on uh, on on Tuesday and, and Wednesday, or excuse me, Monday and Tuesday, that all things were negative. They had two, two negative days, which was a great thing. And then this morning, two more positive cases come in. I don't see how the NFL – it's not about the Titans, in my opinion. You know, the Titans have an outbreak. But you don't want to infect another team that is clean of COVID. So I don't know how the scheduling is going to work. We've talked about it at length on A to Z Sports and all of our social platforms is, do you have to create a Week 18? Uh, How do you reschedule it? They've already pushed the Steelers game back to the Titans bye week and maneuvered that schedule around. But you can't put another team at risk if you're Buffalo. And the other caveat is, you can't move it to Monday or Tuesday like they did with the Patriots or the Chiefs because the Bills play the Chiefs next Thursday. Yeah. So you're not going to have a team play in you know uh, two games in a span of four days. So they, they've got a mess on their hands. But honestly, my gut feeling is that they postpone Sunday's game between the Titans and the Bills. 
Zach, I've kind of applauded Major League Baseball. Despite the rocky start to this shortened season, they, they persevered. And, I mean, you look at the St. Louis Cardinals, who missed three weeks, and they got within two games of playing the full 60-game schedule. I thought it was pretty remarkable and was a little bit of a blueprint for everybody to follow, whether it was college football or the NFL or, or whomever, in terms of you don't have to shut it down, you can just keep on plugging. But the NFL's a little bit different. You you can't say, okay, you're going to go play double headers. Uh, I mean, you, you've got to find a way to either make the games up or be willing to rely on win percentage as opposed to just the win-loss record. D- do you think it's more likely? Because, I mean, I mean, aren't the odds that there are going to be other teams that deal with this at some point over the course of the 17-week schedule, and it makes sense to add a Week 18 or maybe even a Week 18 and Week 19 so that everybody can play the same number of games? I would agree with you. I think the strange – I think uh, in general, everybody has their difference of opinion of COVID-19, right? It's America. Everybody has their opinion. I think now that it has affected one team like it has the Titans, and if it postpones possibly two games, I think that sends a message to every other NFL football player is you better follow this protocol or it, it could affect you. So I'm not sure if we're going to see another outbreak as far as, like, 22 players. Now, I don't know. I, look, the virus does what the virus is going to do. But I, I do think that it ratches it up, ratches up protocol for all these other players. And you, you hope that they, another team doesn't get in the same situation as the Titans. But wouldn't it be strange if, you know, Week 18 is just Titans-Bills? You know, it, what is that an advantage? Is that an extra bye week for playoff teams? You have – you have uh, kind of weird scenarios towards the end of the season. And the other thing is the Bills and the Titans, both undefeated, both playoff teams last year, both trending to be playoff teams this year, that could have big implications at the end of the year. So I'm curious to see how all the other teams react to what's happening here in Nashville. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see it it play out. Uh, And with a good Titans team. I mean, a, a, a good Titans team that's got all the pieces back and was off to a good start and won some close games, but won them uh, nonetheless, which hasn't been the case for everybody. Let, let's switch gears from the NFL to uh, a little east of you in Knoxville, where the Tennessee Vols are off to a 2-0 and start, but if you rewind a little farther, they've won eight in a row. We've talked about the fact that it felt like, really starting with Mississippi State last year, Tennessee learned how to win. And there's been a little bit of a carryover for the end of last season to this season with much of that team back. Do you subscribe to that? And, and I know things are about to get more difficult for Tennessee, but do, do you subscribe to the idea that the teams who have not won a lot for an extended period of time have got to go through that process of learning how to win again? I do. I'll tell you that, and I went to Ole Miss, full disclosure, but I live in Nashville and amongst a lot of ball fans, and they'll remind you that they're 8-0 all the time. That's something that they make sure that you know is that they haven't lost in eight eight times. I do think that it has taken uh, – Jeremy Pruitt has come in and they've restructured. they got Phil Fulmer as the athletic director, but it took – it took some ups and downs to get to that Mississippi State game in Knoxville last year, and they've learned to win. I think that they've beaten teams they should beat uh, from dating back from last year. They yeah. had a roller coaster win in their bowl game against Indiana, and then this season, 
you know, week one against South Carolina, they close out a game where they could have just gone down and gotten a first down. Instead, it was like third and uh, a mile. They were forced to punt in South Carolina. A player accidentally, you know, the, the ball touches his leg and Tennessee recovers game over. Last week is against a really bad Missouri team. I think the key, and this is cliche, but this is Jared Garantano, their quarterback. This is his opportunity. And he's had a lot of opportunities, but he has a lot of It's funny you say that because I was just about to ask you, Zach, is Garantano any good? Uh, At times, yes. At times, really bad. Like, he will (laughs) throw an unbelievable pass, a strike, make a great decision. And then he'll have a wide-open wide receiver in the flat, and he'll bounce it to him. And it's it's head-scratching. So... This is his opportunity, especially against a good Georgia team coming off a big win against Auburn, to kind of prove his value. That's something that Tennessee fans have been waiting. Can can this team and their program beat the big dogs in the East and the West? And it starts with Georgia. It's unique because they play Florida the last game of the season this year because of the schedule. But Garantano has got to step up, and he can't just have, like, 250 yards passing, one touchdown, and no interceptions. That's not going to beat the Georgia, the Alabama, the Floridas, the Auburn, and A&Ms of the world. He's got to have the three-touchdown game and really show out. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if he has that in him. He hasn't shown that, that on the big stage he can step up. We'll find out Saturday. He'll get another opportunity. But I think Tennessee fans are – are kind of tired of waiting on that. Your conversation covered a lot of ground there with Zach Bingham from the Titans to the uh, Tennessee Vols. I'll ask you guys the questions I asked Zach just a second ago. Is Eric Garantano, sorry, Garantano, is he any good? Sometimes. Sometimes Fair you enough. watch him and you're like, hey, this guy's really good. And there's sometimes you watch him and you're like, I wouldn't let this guy quarterback a JV team. So he's inconsistent. There you go. You want to be part of the conversation, you can do so on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395, 601-879-4395. Greg in Nettleton is a noted Tampa Bay Rays fan. He is trying to goad me into a vote in that series, which is 1-1. Yankees and Rays. Last time Greg was harping on the Rays, I think they swept the Yankees. So while I know Greg's money is good, he, he pointed out to me that the money was good, didn't have anything to worry about. Yeah, I, I, I don't doubt that for a second, Greg. I'm not sure that's the best way for me to potentially spend my money. So I'm probably going to stay clear on the uh, American League Division Series bet. Maybe that's just a lack of confidence in what I want to happen. Um, I don't know. Maybe because it'll be my wife goes, "Uh, where's that money going? (laughs) And I don't want to have to explain that if it doesn't go well. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into the college football fix. Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough. So we did our power 
rankings after week one. Horthy has put a little less stipulation on it this week. Maybe it's just the carryover, overreacting a little bit, a little bit of projecting all rolled into one. But what are our power rankings for the SEC? I think we can all agree on Alabama currently at number one. Yes? Yes, 100%. Not even any debate there. No. I Borky scratched out Florida 2, Georgia 3. And I am on board with that for now. I do not have it that way. You like Georgia 2 and Florida 3? That's what I have, yes. Okay. Florida is not good defensively so far. No, but they're really good offensively. They are. They are, but like a little more balance if I could get it. Yeah. Georgia doesn't have that. Doesn't have balance? No. They're really good defensively, but kind of garbage offensively? Stetson Bennett the fourth. How dare you talk about... He's leading the club championship. Third flight, though. You know, he's, he drinks too much, but you can't talk about my uh, my real estate advisor like that. Come on. What about number four in terms of undefeated teams? You've got Tennessee at two and zero, and the previously three mentioned teams: Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. Does that automatically put Tennessee? At number four in the power rankings in the SEC? I spent like 20 minutes thinking about this one. I have no idea if I think Tennessee is is better than Auburn or better than even LSU. I mean, yes, they are 2-0. and And that's great. But it's the two that they won that makes me wonder how good they really are. Okay. And that's not exactly fair because LSU did get smoked at home. But LSU was more impressive, albeit against a very bad Vanderbilt, than Tennessee has looked so far, I think. But I don't know. We'll, we'll learn so much about Tennessee on Saturday. So in terms of the, the Tennessee versus LSU debate, Tennessee is 2-0 with a win as Borky ranks them over number 12 Missouri and number 13 in the power rankings, South Carolina. LSU is 1-1. One with a loss to number 10 in Borky's power rankings, Mississippi State, and a win over number 14, Vanderbilt, in the power rankings. So I'm not it's almost like by default, these, by the way. for now, you put Tennessee there. Kind of, yeah. I didn't. Who do you have for, ten- uh, Borky? LSU. Uh, hey, Dad. LSU. LSU 4. Mm-hmm. It's too talented. It's too talented to stay down for long. All right, the one-and-one teams are LSU, Auburn, Texas A&M, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas. Kentucky's 0-2, Missouri's 0-2, South Carolina's 0-2, Vanderbilt is 0-2. So among the one-loss teams, Borky, you've got Auburn, the highest-ranked one-loss team at six. Yeah, and, and I don't love that at all. Um, I'm telling you, this this is more difficult than last week because what about Auburn is better than Texas A&M? But what about Texas A&M is better than Auburn right now? I I mean, Kentucky's 0-2, uh, but I think they have a potential of winning a few games here down the road. I, I have no idea. And Kentucky's 0-2, but they're a two-point, two-and-a-half-point favorite over Mississippi State who has a win over 
a really talented LSU team. So it is just, it's a nightmare picking these. I do think, though, that Auburn is slightly better than Texas A&M right now. But that's because Texas A&M hasn't been all that impressive in two weeks. Struggling at home to beat Vanderbilt when they had the ball, a chance to win, and then getting smoked, for the most part, by Alabama. I mean, is that any better than what Auburn's done? I would say no. What's what's interesting about this, the one and one teams, is that the same team has the best win and the worst loss, and that's Mississippi State. They have the best win. They beat LSU. They have the worst loss, losing to Arkansas. So I'm with Borky. I have Auburn at six and A&M at seven. I don't particularly like either one of those teams, but that's just where I have them right now. Who do you have at eight? MSU. You got Mississippi State at eight. Mm-hmm. Borky's got Ole Miss at eight. Mm-hmm. I think I, I had Ole Miss. Ole Miss at seven last week. Yeah. I, I tend to like that seven, eight, nine slot for Ole Miss. I, I, I think I have the Ole defensive issues make it harder to have them there. So you've got Ole Miss at nine, one spot behind Mississippi State. Yes. Borky's got Kentucky at nine, one spot ahead of Mississippi State. So he's got Ole Miss eight, Kentucky nine, Mississippi State ten. Not in love with that at all. I just. It, I basically came down to one of which is a favorite this weekend by about a field goal. And so I couldn't decide, and that's what I allowed to be my deciding factor. I have Arkansas at 10 and Kentucky at 11. You're not buying Kentucky right now at all. I just don't, I just don't, I don't like them. I don't like where they are. You know, I don't, I just don't buy them. What do you not like about them? They're 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 losing it like they used to lose. They're making dumb mistakes, penalties, special teams errors. They don't have a a, a true game breaking player. I like their running backs, but I mean, do they have like a true playmaker? If State or anybody can shut them down in the running game, can Terry Wilson win the game? I don't think he can. So I, I just don't. I just watching Kentucky play right now. I I don't I don't feel like they're they're locked into play. The thing that I continue to like a lot about Kentucky, and this has not changed from the offseason, is their offensive line. I was really, really impressed with Kentucky's offensive line last week in terms of both opening holes for running backs and giving Terry Wilson time to throw. Yeah, it's really good. But I think what you say about a lack of playmakers is real. I mean, Josh Ali is the he's the best receiver on that group. I mean, if now throw in your if ifs and buts favorite saying here. If Lynn Bowden was on this team back at wide receiver, woo, different. Yeah. Changes everything for Kentucky offensively. But they don't have a Lynn Bowden. They don't have a guy that can run away from everybody and can hurt you at every level of the field. They don't have that right now. Arkansas at 11, Missouri at 12, South Carolina at 13, Vandy at 14. So we got the battle for the bottom Saturday. With South Carolina and Vandy? Yeah. Winner is locked in, cannot get out probably. 
Do you think Missouri Borky is significantly better than those other two teams? I don't. No, it's not significantly, but they are better. And it's crazy. I even though they just lost, I, I do truly actually believe that Mississippi State is better than Arkansas. I do actually believe that. Hogman notwithstanding, I don't disagree with you. I think if Arkansas and Mississippi State played ten times, probably seven or eight of them at least, Mississippi State wins. But they didn't win the one that mattered because those other nine are on paper. The one that happened on the field on Saturday, Arkansas walked away with a dub. Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll be right back. Earlier today, there was a quote floating floating around from uh, Bryson DeChambeau where he said, uh, I recently watched Happy Gilmore and was inspired to hit the golf ball farther. And then this quote about Augusta. There's going to be holes where I'm going to be bombing it. I'm not trying to do anything other than play like Happy Gilmore. Bring something new to the game and show what possibly can be done. I mean, Augusta is definitely not known with the exception of seven. Um, Seven's kind of a tight hole, but that's the thing about Augusta is they could make it so much harder. Fairways are pretty wide open, and the rough is, I mean, gettable, no matter what. So if I were him I and I could hit the ball the way he did, I'd be doing that too. Just let it go wide open because there's very little out of bounds on the course, and the fairways are wide, and the rough is nothing. It's going to yeah. be a spectacle. Trying to think of holes where he could kind of overpower the field. I mean, you're not going to get home on one, period. Oh, no. But he could make, I mean, he could make most of them just dramatically different. Uh, I mean, two, instead of hitting a wood into the green, he's probably hitting an eight iron into a pretty gettable green. Three, he could drive the green every day, no matter what. Um, really short hole. Um, I mean, seven, if he, if he wants to take a risk... He can do it on seven, though it's narrow. Yeah. Um, 13 could be very different for somebody like him. I'm not sure how you play 13, though. Send it. Don't even worry about the pine trees? Nah, just send it. Out to the right? I mean, I, I guess if you hit a draw or, or you cut the corner, you can kind of take that out of play and get it way down there. I don't know, it's an interesting thought. We're getting close, by the way. Yeah, I've inside... the sun's going down sooner as well. Yeah, it is. Time changes on the weekend of November 7th, I believe it is. Why do we do that to ourselves? (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Masters 2020. November 12th through the 15th. So it'll be the week after the time changes. 
Bryson also toying with the idea of going to a 48-inch driver. Said he's not ready to break it out yet. If he breaks it out, it's going to be in Augusta. Guy thinks differently, but who's to argue at this point? Who's to argue with him doing it differently than everybody else? The results are there. He now has a major championship. Who would you make the odds on favorite going into Augusta if you were the the bookmaker? DJ. Coming off his U.S. Open win, would you make it DeChambeau? I think it would be DJ. He'd be top two or three. You know, I guess you have to consider what the money would go on, right? Uh, Brooks is healthy again. I think he's playing this week or next week, right? So we'll see how he looks post-injury. But DJ Brooks, DeChambeau, and you have to throw Tiger somewhere up to the top because he's going to get all kinds of money. I, I mean, obviously I wouldn't have picked Tiger to win last year. It was an unbelievable story. I did. Yes, I know you did. And I'm sure if we have a pool, you're going to pick him again this year, aren't you? Why would I not? <laughs> Dustin Johnson has three top tens at the uh, no, I'm sorry, he's got four top tens at the Masters in his career. He finished tied for six in 2015, tied for fourth in 2016, did not play it in 2017, tied for tenth in 18, and tied for second last year. So really, really good in the last four Masters in which he has played. Four top tens in the last four Masters that he's played in. Prior to that, had never had a top ten. T30, T38 twice, T13, and missed the cut in 2014. But he's been a different player at Augusta since then. And was the odds-on favorite the year he fell down the stairs. I think Borky raises his eyebrows when you say he fell down the stairs. Maybe that's not exactly what happened. Well, that's the story that everybody was told. Socks on wooden stairs, it'll get you. Yeah, they're a little slick. Bill Connolly at uh, ESPN Now, used to be at SB Nation, does the uh, uh, S&P Plus rankings, a little bit different formula that's kind of a power ranking for him, and does predictions for games. Here's some of the... uh, I don't know, some of the top games this week with score predictions. Florida by 10, 33-23 over Texas A&M in College Station. Oklahoma by a field goal over Texas, 35-32 at the Cotton Bowl. North Carolina, 31-26 over Virginia Tech. Georgia by 13 over Tennessee, 28-15. Fairly low-scoring game. What's the total in that game? Uh, let's see. I've got it right here. 42 is the total. So that would be over. That would be over by a point. Notre Dame big over Florida State, 36-17. Notre Dame is a 20-point favorite against Florida State. My, how times have changed. I think that'll be even bigger than what he's projecting. Clemson 32-21 over Miami. That's a good game. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is an are you for real game for Miami. It's not an are yeah, you back game. Yeah. But it's a, a ha- and and they don't have to win for the answer to be in the are game. you for real to be yes. Be in the game. Fourth quarter, are you down ten or less? Mississippi State at Kentucky. A fifty-five percent win probability for Kentucky. He picks the Wildcats to win the game thirty. To 27. Or am I reading that wrong, Borky? Does he have Mississippi State winning that game? No, he has Kentucky no. winning. Okay, Kentucky winning it 30 to 27. So Mississippi State covering because they're getting two and a half. He's got the under hitting in that game. Total points 58. He's got it coming in at 57. Well, he's got his analytics. I will reveal mine on Friday's show. Give me tease it. It's going to be something like you've never seen. Okay. Alabama at Ole Miss. He gives Alabama an eighty-nine percent chance to win the game. Bama a twenty-three point favorite. Final score forty-two twenty. Bama. He's got the under hitting, which is set at sixty-seven and a half. So much of that feels like it could be weather-dependent. And kind of circling back to where we started today, anticipating some sort of an announcement about the Ole Miss-Alabama game, either tonight or perhaps in the morning. I told you earlier, you, you've got the story from uh, Cecil Hurt, covers Alabama. The Tuscaloosa News has for a long time. Wrote a story earlier today that basically said all the options are on the table. And those options range from a Friday night game to playing the game in November on the joint open date for these two teams. Potentially moving up the start time on Saturday is part of the equation as well. So we'll just wait and see. I have been led to believe that the Friday playing on Friday is not a very likely scenario. It's not impossible, but it is not likely. But we'll just wait and see. Do not anticipate any issues with Mississippi State and Kentucky playing other than the fact that they could very well be playing in the rain on Saturday night in Lexington. By the way, that is the SEC Network Saturday night primetime game with Tom and Jordan and Cole. And on the Thunder and Lightning podcast tomorrow, you will hear a conversation that Brian Haydad had with Cole Kublik to preview the matchup. Along with a conversation with uh, John Hale of the Louisville Courier Courier Journal. Two interviews. There you go. So you get a uh, full preview of that matchup between Mississippi State and Kentucky. Almost slated to be a 5 o'clock game on ESPN as things stand right now. We will wrap up this Wednesday edition of Sports Talk. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.